turn to Mark chapter 14, if you would. Mark chapter 14 and beginning at verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the court gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and asked again, Oh, excuse me. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that we could come this morning uh, to stand before you and to hear you as you uh, teach and you instruct us. Lord, we just thank you so much that the word that you have revealed to us is not just a bunch of platitudes that really have nothing to do with our lives but we're so thankful god that you speak directly to where we live uh, lord to the things that we struggle with the things that we wrestle with but we also know that in all of these things that you give us hope in jesus christ so give us ears to hear and to listen and to respond today by faith we pray in your name Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Unfortunately, uh, I think that all of us have heard of ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ who have fallen into sin. And uh, probably of those that you have heard that that has happened to, there are many that are not even in the ministry today. And of those that maybe have stayed out for a while, maybe sort of put their life back together, repented, sought the help of the church, and then returned to ministry, oftentimes we find that even as those ministers return to ministry, that their ministries are not the same as what they used to be. And, and I think it's so easy for us as the church to sort of write these men off. Uh, to sort of say, well, you know, not to be flippant, but maybe sometimes our attitude can sort of be, well, you know, another one bit the dust. And we just sort of go on and we just sort of dismiss those ministers. But the reality is, it is a great travesty to see a backsliding and uh, to see the backsliding and the fall of a true Christian. Um, and I know there, it's, it was popular there for a while to see ministers who would stand up and say, you know, who had written books and uh, espoused the Christian faith for years and preached the gospel, and then they would stand up and they say, yeah, I, I never knew Christ. And that's not what I'm talking about. 
But I'm just talking about genuine believers, men in the faith who have rustled and somehow fell into some sin, inappropriate behavior, or whatever it may be, and, and yet then they return to the faith. And such a thing is, is so difficult. But that's what we're looking at today in the text that we're, we're seeing. And what I hope you understand before we leave this place is this isn't a text just for fallen ministers, but this is a text for all of us as Christians. It's, it's where we live. It's the things that we wrestle with. It's the things that we struggle with. And so I want us to look at this this morning. I, I will also say this, if I could just give a little plug for Sunday school. Uh, if you don't come to Sunday school, I would encourage you, if you're able, I know not everyone is able, maybe due to distance or other things, but, but if you're able, I would encourage you to come. Uh, I am amazed at how many times, I don't even talk to Chris during the week about what he's going to be teaching in Sunday school and what I'm going to be preaching on, but you know, the Lord orchestrates it many times where it just sort of builds on one another. And uh, it, if you were here in Sunday school, your, your, your heart's probably already pumped and primed for the message that I'm going to be sharing today because there's going to be a lot of overlap between that. But it's just neat to see the way that the Lord works. And as we look at our text today, and we think about this whole idea of our, our temptation to fall, I want us to see, first of all, that all believers may fall. All believers may fall. And they may fall far, and they may fall shamefully. And, and we see that with Peter. We know that the Simon Peter was a very prominent apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was one who had actually received special honors for Christ in, in many ways, uh, especially the one that you may think of the most is Matthew 16, 18, when, when Peter declared that Jesus is the Messiah. And then Jesus said these words, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now I know there's a lot of different thoughts and ideas about this. Some think that's Peter the person. Some think it's his, his confession. I'm not going to get into all that this morning, but he just said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then he goes on in verse 19 and he says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. You see, he uh, Peter was one of these people who had experienced special privileges uh, from Christ and special mercies that had been shown to him. I mean, uh, and yet, uh, here we see Simon Peter, the rock, who lo is looking more like a crumbling rock or a bolter that's breaking apart, uh, entirely overcome by fear and a fear that actually leads to him denying his master. Uh, he declares not only that he did not know Jesus, who had accompanied, whom he had accompanied for uh, three years, but he declares that he doesn't know him who had also healed his mother-in-law. He didn't know him who had taken him up on the mountain and allowed him to see the transfiguration of Christ. He was saying he didn't know him who had reached out his hand and saved Peter from drowning in the midst of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And he not only denies his master, but he does so three times. And, and he not only denies him, but verse 71 says he does so with cursing and swearing. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. 
And above all, he does all this in the face of the fact that Jesus had prophesied ahead of time that he would do this. And, and Peter, uh, because of his pride, would not allow himself to see that there could even be the possibility in his own heart that he could deny his master. As a matter of fact, he said, I would rather die than deny you, Jesus. You know, and I, I wonder, as we think about Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, John tells us he's the one that drew his sword and cut off the servant's ear. You know, I wonder if Peter, when he pulled out that sword in the Garden of Gethsemane, did so to show that he was willing to die for Jesus. You know, that my, he, my dedication is so pure, Jesus, to, and, and so dedicated to you that I am willing to die for you. But I think it's one thing to follow Jesus Christ when you're in control, and it is quite another to follow him when you're in a position of weakness. When you are in a position where you could suffer for Christ, and, and pain may be your lot. And Peter's a, a reminder for us in that. I also think it's interesting that as you, as you look at this text, um, you know, this isn't the, really the first place Peter is mentioned. He's actually mentioned back in, in verse uh, 54. It said that Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And, and it's interesting that, you know, if, if you look at the text that we looked at last week and the text that we're looking at this week, you actually could put those two together. It would have preached for me to preach one sermon on these two texts as much as it is to preach two because they really do sort of go together. And it's an interesting study to contrast the difference between Jesus' testimony of himself and Peter's testimony of who Jesus Christ is. I mean, listen to what Jesus says about himself in verse 62. And Jesus said, I am. Okay, that, that word, that Greek, those Greek words, I am, is ego eimi. It's the same words that Jesus spoke in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're told in some of the other Gospels that when Jesus spoke that word, that what happened to the soldiers, kids? Do you remember? Boom, they fell back. He said, I am. And they fell backwards because that is the name for God. Jesus says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's who Jesus testifies about himself. And this is what Peter says in verse 71. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. So earlier... Peter tried to follow Jesus with the sword. He was trying to, to remedy the situation in his own strength and in his own wisdom, doing what he thought was right. But it is interesting that as you look at verse 54, Peter is coming from a whole different perspective. He's now sitting around the fire, and it, it, it even begins by saying, and Peter had followed him at a distance. Isn't that sometimes the reality for us as well in regards to Christ? Sometimes the circumstances of our greatest defeats are that we are following Jesus from a distance. Is that maybe where some of us may be this morning? Are you following Jesus from a distance? Are, are you drawing 
back from Jesus. Maybe, as Chris said in Sunday school, you know, um, whenever our hearts are prone to sin, it's not that we reject Jesus, but we oftentimes, what we do is we don't follow him only. If you look at the Israelites, rarely did they forsake the temple worship. The Israelites still continued to do the worship that God had prescribed. They just may have become sloppy in it. For example, rather than bringing a perfect lamb that was without blemish, they were just accepting any old sacrifice. You know, so they got really sloppy in the things and they did not do and obey what the Lord had said. But they also, oftentimes, when they did their worship, they did their worship in the temple, but then they would also go sacrifice their children to Moloch. And, and so their, their worship was, was very tainted and, and evil and, and wicked. And, and oftentimes, when we follow Jesus from a distance, it's not that we are forsaking Jesus. We still come to church on, on Sunday mornings, and, and maybe we're very faithful in, in reading the scriptures and having our quiet times, but, but instead what we're doing is, is we're allowing the world and its pleasures to cloud our sights. Uh, we are allowing the world and the agenda of the world to capture our mind and our desires and our wills rather than Christ. But there are times maybe when we're following Jesus from a distance that, that we are distant from his word, that we are distant in our times of prayer rather than that sweet fellowship. And you know what I'm talking about when you can be with Jesus and you can read the word of God and, and, and the Holy Spirit just makes those words jump off the page. And it's like it's almost like God is just speaking to you. It's not like he's written it down in a book for all humanity, but it's like he's speaking right directly to you from the, the pages of Scripture as maybe he reveals the, the sin of the, your heart or he shows you your fears and your worries and, and he comforts you with his word. And then as you pray to him, it's just such sweet fellowship to pour your heart out to him, your mind, your desires, your will to him to to say, Lord, help me. And you know he hears you and he gives you strength. But sometimes we can be so distant. And as we look at Peter and his denial, uh, we need to understand that these things were written to the church for a reason. And they were written to show us what human nature is, even in the best of us, what human nature is. It it has been written to, to show us Uh, that even after our conversion and the renewal of the Holy Spirit in our mind, uh, in our lives, the believers are weak and that we can be prone to fall even in our faith. That there are those uh, believers um, that wrestle, that that any of us could fall, that any of us are prone to, to do that. Now, you may know of believers who you would say, no, Pastor Rick, but I know this saint, this godly saint, who uh, is just on fire for the Lord, and they don't seem to be weak at all. But I, and, and I would say this, I, I know what you're talking about. I had this guy, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm getting to be an older man myself, but I can still remember this guy's name. His name is Chet Bowles, and he was in the church I was at, and I have never, ever, ever seen a man so on fire for the Lord. He loved Jesus, and he talked to everybody about Jesus. And at church, he was like, 
you know, I mean, his worship, you could just tell, was so authentic uh, to the Lord and stuff. And he, uh, he had a Bible that was the most worn out, you know, the pages were falling out. It was marked up. That guy couldn't open his mouth without the Word of God coming out. He was just that kind of man. But I'll tell you what, if you know the Chet Bowles of this world, I think what they would tell you is this, that they are not strong in and of themselves, but they are strong in the Lord. And that's what I saw in Chet Bowles' life. There was a sense in which there was a dependence upon God's Word, that they understood their weakness. And they would go to the Lord and they would, they would pray to Him. And, and that's what I think this text is, is, is here to, to remind us this morning, to impress upon us the immense importance of daily watchfulness in terms of our lives. Because we are weak, because we do have that propensity to fall, we must daily be watchful. We must daily be prayerful in praying to the Lord. We must be humble before the Lord, saying, Oh God, would you make me stand because we knew that we know that left to ourselves we could easily fall. As long as we are in this body, we have such struggles. That's why if I could remind you the words of Paul that I, I shared with you a couple weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 10 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So let us be careful to remember that Simon Peter was such a man. But he's not the only man in Scripture where we see someone who is struggling in their faith, someone who is weak, someone who has fallen. The Word of God contains many examples of the weakness of true believers which we would do well to observe. Men like Noah, uh, who went out and got drunk. Uh, Abraham, who, who, who lied and and tried to take God's uh, plan in his own uh, hands and, and make God's covenant promises come true. David, who sinned with Bathsheba, Hezekiah, and, and the list goes on and on. All of these supplies us with ample and mournful proof that the infection of sin remains even in the regenerate. That we still struggle with the remnant of, of sin, as Paul talks about in Romans. And that no person is so strong is to be beyond the danger of falling, would it not be except for the grace of God? So let us not forget this. We need to pray for ourselves. We need to pray for our families. But we also need to pray for others. And I would suggest to you, brothers and sisters, you need to pray for those in the church who are strong or in positions of leadership. Um, because, you know... Well, let me just say this. For men like your elders, men like the pastor, you need to pray for those men because all of those men are as weak as you are and, and prone to temptation. And so we need to pray for them for strength because especially if the Lord can take out an elder, he can take out a pastor, which is one of the elders, you know, then how much damage can he do to the church? And so let us walk humbly with our God and let us remember the word of Proverbs 28, 14 that says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. 
who fears the Lord always. May we be such people. So all of us as believers uh, are prone to fall uh, because of our weakness. But the second thing I want us to see is that all believers may fall greatly uh, by, by even a small sin, by even a small temptation. All believers may fall greatly even by such a small temptation. In other words, we must never forget how even a small temptation may cause a believer to fall so uh, great and so shamefully. Look at the beginning of Peter's trial. It, 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 it's really nothing more than just a simple remark from a, a, the maid of, a, of the high priest. Look at verse 67. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the, the Nazarene, Jesus. Now, you know, oftentimes we read that uh, verse like this. You! You were with Jesus! And, you know, with this great accusation, sorry, didn't mean to scare you, with this great <laughs> accusation and pointing fingers, and, and she may have spoken that way. We, we don't know for certain. But she, but she could have been just saying, weren't you with Jesus? I think you were one of his disciples, right? You were one of his companions. We don't, we don't know exactly how they said it, but it was just a simple statement that, that, was, that was given uh, to Peter and of which caused him great difficulty. Uh, the most prominent of our Lord's chosen disciples is cast down not by the threats of these soldiers. I mean, he's sitting around the fire with the soldiers who had arrested Jesus. And so there's all these armed men, but he wasn't taken down by those guys. He was taken down by a lowly servant girl who just made a simple comment. And just like that, it was a temptation to Peter. There, and there's something very instructive in, in this fact. It, it ought to teach us that there is no temptation too small and insignificant that it cannot overcome us except we watch and pray and be held up by God. It's interesting that if, if God be before us, you know, that, that we are a people that can move mountains by faith, right? That's what the scriptures tell us if we do that. But it's not us who does that. It's God who is working in and through us. But in the same way, it's interesting that if, if, uh, if God withdraws his grace and he leaves us to ourselves, we are like a city without gates and walls, a prey to the first enemy, however weak and contemptible that person may be. So we must be aware of making light of temptations because they seem little or insignificant. Maybe think of those who have been led astray from the path of righteousness by, by Satan's scheme. Satan, sometimes, he tempts us in different ways, but one of the ways he tempts us is sometimes he just puts out breadcrumbs. Have you ever seen that? Where Satan just puts out breadcrumbs in front of you uh, to get you to follow. It's a lot like chickens. You know, if you take chickens and you sort of throw some uh, cornmeal out or something like that, just little pieces here and there, you can get them to follow you and you could take them to a trap if you wanted and you could take their life. And Satan oftentimes does that with us. He takes these little crumbs that he throws out in front of us. Not big temptations, not, not glaring temptations. He doesn't lead with the trap out front. He usually puts the breadcrumbs that leads to the trap that, that ensnares us. Uh, if you would, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. 
Let me read this, if I could. This is the story of King David and Bathsheba. I want us to consider it again. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servant with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged the Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him and lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are, are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem and day, that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servant of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fight, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, and then skip down to verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Do you see the, the sin that, that David committed? It's in verse 1. He stayed home from war. And you think, how, how bad of a sin is that? You know, Joab is a, a, a very capable general, uh, his men were valiant men. What's wrong with them going out to battle and David staying home? But David was shirking his responsibility as king to be out and to be defending his people. 
And so it just starts with something just as simple as he just didn't go to war. He just decided to sit this one out. And then look at verse 2. It said, it happened. I love that. It happened. You know, just sort of one day the opportunity popped up. It happened. Late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking out on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was a very beautiful. And then we just see verses 3, 4, 5, just this quick sequence. David asked about her. He sent for her. He lay with her, and she tells him, I'm pregnant. Just three verses. But then verses 6 through 8, you see David, he, then he begins to plot how he can cover up this sin. You know, of course, by getting Uriah to come back and be with his wife. But that didn't work. And so then in verses 14 and 15, David devises the new plan. Rather than covering up his sin, he's just going to eliminate, you know, Uriah. And so he has him killed. So, so look at that sequence. Just the small sin that David doesn't go to war. He doesn't fulfill his responsibilities, which sort of leads him to inactivity. He has this free time on his hands. And so then... He sees Bathsheba, he falls in, he commits adultery, and then after that, then he commits murder. Do you see how sin works in our lives? It just seems so small, it seems so insignificant, and yet that sin can lead us to such great travesties. You know, it's, it says, uh, Paul told the Galatians, he goes, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know, kids, if you, if you help your mom with cooking, you know that when she's making homemade bread, she puts some yeast, some leaven in there, and you sort of work that leaven all the way through, and that causes that bread to rise. And, and, and what Paul is trying to get across is, he goes, sin is like that leaven. You just take a tiny bit of sin, and, and it has a widespread corrupting influence on the hearts of the minds and the desires and the wills of every of even believers. And so, you know, the Bible also talks about how a little spark can create a big fire or, or a leak may sink a great ship. You know, uh, the, just a little provocation may bring out from our hearts a great corruption and end in bringing our souls into great trouble. And that's why we're called to watch and to pray. If, if you remember, Jesus kept returning to Peter or, uh, to Peter and uh, James and John in the garden when they kept falling asleep. And Jesus said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And brothers and sisters, these are words we need to heed. That maybe oftentimes, you know, in our lives, um, are we careful to look for the little temptations and maybe the things that just seem so insignificant. I mean, really, what does it matter that you watch what you watch on TV? I mean, it's just entertainment. What does it matter, kids, that, that you know, you hang around certain friends that, that your parents would say are a bad influence? I mean, how, how does that really affect anything? And yet, oftentimes, it's, it's just so amazing how many times Christians will watch TV shows that if you were in a theological discussion in church, and you were proposing that people do what we watch them do on TV shows, if, if you said in a theological discussion, oh, I think that's okay, 
everybody would look at you like, what? What did you just say? And yet we'll oftentimes let our guards down because it's just entertainment. Or, or they're just friends. You know, what does it hurt as they're constantly espousing things to me that may lead me astray? And so I think we need to ask ourselves, are our lives and how we live them enough of a concern to us that we might pray even about those things in our life that seem insignificant? That we would pray and we would recognize that the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we're praying to the Lord, Lord, help me. Oh, Lord, help me in the things that I watch and the things that I do and the ways that I spend my money. I guess my question this morning is this. Do you realize how weak your flesh is? And, and does it cause you to turn to Jesus this morning, knowing that the simplest of temptations can tempt you to turn from your Savior? That such a, even a, a little thing could lead you far away from Him. The third thing I want us to see in, in closing very briefly is just that all believers may fall, but those who do will do so with great sorrow. Those that fall will do so with great sorrow. Look at verse 72. So, sort of see the conclusion. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now, I didn't know much about roosters. I thought I did growing up on a farm. But uh, evidently, Palestinian roosters crow at certain times, from what I've read. That they usually crow about 12.30 in the morning, they crow at 2 a.m. in the morning, and then at 3 a.m. in the morning. And, which just seems really odd to me, being a country boy, but, you know, <laughs> that's what I've read. And so, if that's the case, then by the time this happened, it was about 2 a.m. And so, Peter had been tempted over the last hour and a half to two hours um, to deny Christ, and he did so three times. We see in verse 67, first of all, with the servant girl and Peter, and then verse 69 with the servant girl and the bystanders as she's talking to them, and then the bystanders as they said to, to Peter, uh, uh, but, um, and they accused him, but he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. Now, kids, I've said this verse about three times in this sermon, and I want you to understand that when it says that uh, he uh, that he cursed, it doesn't mean he was cussing. Okay, it was really more like he was taking an oath. He was saying, "Let me be damned if if I ever knew this man." I'm I'm swearing on an oath that I do not know this man is really what he was saying. And no sooner did Peter say that than the rooster crowed. Now, we read in Luke's Gospel a little bit more of the story. You know, Jesus is being tried up in this upper room, and the text tells us, even in Mark, that, you know, the, the um, courtyard was down below. And in Luke 22, 61, we also read this, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. So here's Jesus. Peter's just denied Jesus. And Jesus looks down. He's coming out of the room evidently where he was tried. And he sees Peter. I don't know if they locked eyes or what. 
But, but who of us could, could even pretend to, to understand what Peter was going through in that moment? Uh, I mean, I, I couldn't conceive of the, the, the shame and, and the confusion and, and, and the self-reproach and the bitterness that, that Peter must have been overwhelmed by to think that here he was one of Christ's, not only his disciples, but one of his inner circle of his disciples. And yet he had fallen not only so far, but so repeatedly. And, and, and even in the face of Christ's clear warning, uh, all of this must have cut Peter to the core of his being. Um, and, and I think we need to understand that, that Peter's not the only one, like I said before. Others have done so. Samson, David, Lot, Josephat, you know, others. Even Bishop Cramner that I talked about a couple of weeks ago uh, denied the faith and then he put his hand in the fire as he recanted of, of, of uh, the things of denying Christ. Uh, all like Peter were men who uh, were not only had fallen into sin, but they had repented of that sin as well. You see, the difference between Peter and Judas is this. Judas' tears were ones of regret. They were, he was sorry that he had betrayed Jesus. But Peter's were one of sorrow. Ones of sorrow that had led to repentance. Um, you know, I think it's interesting that what we see here is that Peter denies Jesus, but we need to understand that Jesus never denies Peter. And that's really important for us to hear this morning. Let me, let me read it. Look at Luke 22. Luke 22, uh, verse 31. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus knew this was coming up and, and he prayed for Peter that he would uh, stand firm. You know, our, our tendency might be to think that when Jesus looked down at Peter into the court courtroom that, or courtyard, that he might have been disappointed with Peter. He might have been surprised by uh, the fact that he had denied him. But from what Scripture says, it, it, that's not the case. Jesus loved Peter, and he was seeking to restore him. That's why it's so important that um, the details that the Bible gives us in Mark, if look back at Mark, if you would, Mark 16, uh, verse 6. The women are at the tomb and they see an angel there. And this is what we read. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee there you will see him just as he told you now do you see how loving that is if if you had found yourself denying Christ I think it would be very uh, fair to say that you might think am I even his disciple and if the angel had said Go tell the disciples to meet Jesus. I could see Peter wondering, is that me? But God is so gracious. And he's so specific in his grace. 
that he reaches out to Peter through these women and he says, they said for the disciples to go, and you too, Peter, you're still his disciple. You see, when Christ experiences defeat, what, what appears to be defeats, like through his trial, his arrest, all these things, we see that those are, are really his victories. This is what he went through to, to purchase salvation for us. But for you and me, sometimes our greatest failures really just show our failures. Nothing more. Except they also oftentimes display the wonderful grace of God towards us. Though our sins abound, His grace abounds even more. And, and maybe you're here this morning and maybe you have messed up royally. Maybe you're here and, and all you can think about this morning as I'm talking is about your sin. But the, the, but the Holy Spirit is here this morning and He says to you, yes, you are a sinner, but you have an even greater Savior. Do you believe that? Do you believe that as you think about your sin and the things that you have done this week, the words that you have spoken that have just cut your, your, your friend or, or maybe your spouse to the, the core of their being, and you just wish, oh, I wish I could take those words back. I wish I, I cannot believe I've said that. And as you're wrestling with that, do you understand what a great Savior you have? Though you deny Him, He will never deny you. When we are faithless, He remains faithful. Because we have to understand that Christ cannot deny Himself. That if we are His children, that we are part of His body. And He cannot deny His own body. You see, the one thing that I hope you're seeing in the Passion Week is the ugliness of man's nature. We see that in the garden. We see that in the arrest and in, 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 in the, the passage last week as religious leaders are trying to trump up charges on Jesus. It's just like ugliness of, upon ugliness upon ugliness. But we also see the glorious nature of God and the certainty of His Word. Every step of the way, the Word of God is fulfilled. What Jesus says He does. What He prophesies, others do. And when you have your soul wrapped around the promises of God, not about how you feel about your sin or the things that you have done this week, but when you have your soul wrapped around the promises of God, you have your soul wrapped around something that's more secure than the ground that's under your feet. Think of God's promises this morning. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Draw near to, to God, and He will draw near to you. And we know that those who love God, uh, all, excuse me, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose.
No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And the promises go on and on and on. So brothers and sisters, this morning, I want to encourage you to wrap yourselves in the promises of God. And it doesn't matter what you think about yourself. Or what matters is, is what God has promised to us. And God has settled it. He said it. And that settles it. And so this morning, um, as you think about your sin, as you think about the things that you are wrestling with, if you find yourself as one who has fallen, God is faithful to forgive if you come to Him and you ask for forgiveness. And I, and I want us to think, too, also, uh, just even about... Um, the life in which we live. For some of you, you may struggle with anxieties. You think about the world in which we live and, and, and the things that are going on in our culture. But I would just want to remind you that there is one thing that is sure, and that is that God has spoken. And He will do what He says. And Christ will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but you have come to a community this morning that is destined to last forever. Did you realize that? That this community, Christ Church, is something that will last forever. And it is the only one on earth that can say that because God is the one who has said it. Kingdoms will fall. People will fall. Christians will falter ministers will fall into sin. We will disappoint our Lord and we will commit evil against Him. But Jesus is the King of kings and His kingdom stands forever. And blessed are the people who know that Jesus is their Savior and that He will forgive them from their sins. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads together this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your wonderful grace. Lord, any of us this morning could, could sit here before you and our minds could be going over of all the ways that we have displeased you, the ways, Lord, we have been flippant about our sins. Lord, the ways that we have excused our sins or sought to be like David and cover it up. Lord, we know that we are guilty before you. And so we thank you for such love. And we thank you for such forgiveness. And we just pray, Lord, that not only would you forgive us for our sins, but God, we pray for those who don't know you, that are living under the weight of the burden 
of all the sins of their lives. Oh God, may you set them free this morning as they turn to you and cry out that they may come to you and be made a child of the living God, completely washed as white as snow. Not because they deserve it, but because of your love. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.